If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And also, if you have your booklet there, definitely Ephesians 1. We're picking up our study in Ephesians. We are coming to uh, an interesting point in this first chapter. You say, good grief, we're moving slower than dirt. Yes, we are. Uh, and the reason is, is because any time that you're dealing with doctrines, and especially some doctrines that may have been misunderstood or confusing in the past, you want to give the Bible an opportunity to speak to that situation. And uh, that's exactly what I hope that we would, we would do, and that we would have open hearts to be able to receive that as it does. So, uh, with the introduction aside that we've taken a look at, I want to start with this. Sorry, did you need It's okay. Right acting begins with right thinking. And right thinking begins with thinking right about what God is like. I think this is probably one of the most important things I've ever encountered in ministry. Because what you find out is that any time that a wrong action has either been displayed or promoted or encouraged or endorsed, it's always because the thought behind it is somehow, even slightly, off of the Bible. That's a very concerning point. I would hope as people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and have been saved by His grace that we would want to live rightly, but in order to do that, we have to think rightly about Him. A famous quote that A.W. Tozer has is, what you think about God is the most important thing about you. Everything else pales in comparison. It's in a shadow compared to what you think about God. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been around many people who think about God and people who have thoughts about God and people who think that God thinks in certain ways of His thoughts that they didn't think. You ever thought that? And you say, wait a second, but that's, that's not what I see God doing. That's not what I think about God. Or when that comes across, I'm not at peace. With God being like that, I don't understand. The great thing about the Bible, and I don't remember who said this, is that it shines an incredible amount of light on our theology. We can read books all day long, and we can get a lot of good structure for how we ought to think. But the Bible really is the whittling tool to make us sharp. If you look with me at verses 3 and 4, he begins this incredible doxology. He, he calls us to worship over the great things that God has done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, personal inclusive pronoun, right? Paul and you and me. So that means usins, okay? With every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, What's the first blessing look like? Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Notice that we were chosen in Him. Or let me say this a little bit more succinctly because there, there, there seemed to be a little bit of misunderstanding about what I was going for last week. In order to be chosen by Him, God the Father, you have to be in Him, Jesus Christ the Son, first. Which means that you have come in contact with the message of His death and resurrection because of our sins, taking our place on the cross, satisfying the wrath of God, and now salvation is full and free, open to anyone who would believe. The moment you believe, you receive eternal life as a free gift. Your sins, multiple offenses against God, have been completely wiped from your slate, regardless if they're past, present, or future. They were all future when Jesus died. And you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit until the day of your redemption, which is out ahead when Jesus calls us in the air to meet him there called the rapture. That's all a done deal. Nothing you can do about it. You got to like it. Okay? It's all by his grace. But in order to be chosen by him, you first have to have believed and be in him to be chosen. At least that's what the passage tells us. Now, when God made this decision was before the foundation of the world, that's when he decided that this was the way he was going to handle the corporate nature of the church. But the question is, is okay, if we're chosen in Christ, what are we chosen to? 
And what we are chosen to is very clear here. That we would be, if you have the English Standard Version, it will say that you should be. In other words, God has an intended goal out ahead that is now possible for us that was never possible when we were lost. So now being in Christ, the floodgates have flown wide open and there's this entirely brand new life for us to live and all these brand new privileges for us to embrace and make our own. Not that we have to earn, not that we have to work up to, we simply need to lay back in them and be. Does that make sense? Are we sure? Let me give you two terms real quick. I didn't even plan on going here, but I'm going to. Let me give you this, and I encourage you to write them down, please. They're not technical terms. Ah, stop it. Good grief. It looks like it says beer. That's not what I'm getting at. Beer, be-er, versus do-er. In other words, all of God's spiritual blessings, every one of which He has lavished on us freely in His Son, are situations where we get to be. It's not where we do. We're not earning anything. In fact, if we do, we cease to be. Does that make sense? Because what God has already done for us in giving us every spiritual blessing, as soon as we say, well, I need to do this and I need to do this, and we create the spiritual laundry list, we've now said every spiritual blessing that God has provided in Christ is not his ideal for us, or we don't believe that he's freely given it to us, and therefore we need to try to modify our behavior in order to earn what's already freely ours. Now, it's kind of like the idea of going out and buying bottled water when you got a tap at home. In Portage, I understand that. But in some situations, you'd be like, why are we doing that? You know? It's kind of like that. You have it already freely given to you. And so the great thing about us is we just need to simply live in the light of all that he says is true about us. We get to be a beer. Okay? As soon as I become a doer, I diminish the being. Now, I don't want to get hung up in that too much because we are going to talk about this concept a little bit more later. But for some reason, it's on my mind. You are already accepted fully by the Father because of the work of the Son. Now, I've promoted this before. I think I talked about it last week. I talked about it in Sunday school. I'm going to talk to you about it now. Larry Moyer, our friend that just came to the Wild Game Feed, just came out with a new book at the end of December. It's called Eternal Life, How You Can Know You Have It. I encourage you, get on Amazon and buy it. It's great. He brings up an incredible point. In the death of Christ, God and his wrath against sin was completely satisfied. So if we get into a situation where we're thinking we've got to do something in order to earn more from God of what he's already given us because he's satisfied, we're saying that there's a standard or a level that we have that is of greater significance than God's level of satisfaction. In other words, we're essentially saying God was satisfied too easily by the death of Christ, and my work has got to get in there and make it really satisfactory. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like blasphemy to me. Because what we're saying is, the cross was not enough, and even though God was okay with it, I'm not. That is failing to be a beer, just living in the truth of all that God has said is real about me, and trying to be a doer and diminishing the work of the cross in the process. That's a problem. So notice, the ideal that Jesus has secured for us as part of the every spiritual blessing is that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And I take that to be the judgment seat of Christ. I don't think that period is there. And we're to do so in our love for one another. I can actually exist with you in a spotless and holy manner in my conduct. Because that's an ability I have now. Holy Spirit wrought, given to me through the blood of Jesus that I never had before. And guess what? You have that for me. I'm no more special than you are. You're no more special than I am. And Paul is no more special than we are. We're just all special together because of Jesus. That's a great thing. Now, everybody drives at 60 miles an hour through this passage. And then they decide all of a sudden when they get to verse 5, they're just going to throw on the emergency brake and see what happens. 
okay? For some reason, anybody ever been in a car that does had done that before? Yeah, me either. Okay. <laughs> I think I was 15. It was great. I wasn't driving. Okay. Here it is. If we don't understand verse 4, we will automatically read into and default verse 5. Okay? He. Who are we dealing with in this in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6? God the Father. Okay? First person of the Trinity. So the Father did something. He predestined. Now, notice what we got here. Us. Okay? Which means, in whatever predestiny that God did, and we're not making any apologies. Did God predestine? Yes, he absolutely did. Okay? Predestined us. Paul and us and the Ephesians, all believers. Predestined us for something. Okay? Two. This. Now, we're going to stop there. We're not even going to deal with adoption as sons until next week because it's a subject totally on its own that the Scripture speaks richly about, and it's important for us to understand it. But the fact is, God has predestined. And that's a point that we need to deal with. Now, here's the problem. And understand this. Number one, let me if, if I seem to get aggressive or angry in any way about this, I'm not trying to be, okay? I'll go ahead and let you know. Um, I was in a system for about eight years of my Christian life that believed what I'm getting ready to show you. I was the greatest jerk in all the world about it. Okay? Unloving in every possible way about what it could be. Handled it poorly. So I understand it inside and out. I understand the dangers of it. I understand some of the judgments that come with it. I understand some of the attitudes that spring from it. Am I saying that everybody is like that when they believe this way? No. If you believe this way, I'm not saying this about you. Don't take it personally. Please don't read into anything I say. That's the worst thing we could ever do to one another, okay? So don't do that. But I think it's important for us to bring up these ideas and for us to wrestle through them and to think because the Bible speaks very clearly about this subject. This is what we understand is the salvific election or predestination view. Now, when I say the word salvific, I know it's a jeopardy term, okay? But the idea is, is just it pertains to salvation. How people are redeemed or how they go to heaven when they die. And in this view of salvation, they have to take election or the choosing, you were chosen in him, of verse 4, and they have to connect it intimately to predestination. You'll see why in just a second. But what my concern is, is what this type of thinking springs out. And more importantly, is this what the Bible teaches? Here we go. R.C. Sproul has a book called Chosen by God. He's, he was considered, before he died, probably the world's foremost authority on this subject. He says what predestination means in its most elementary form is that our final destination, heaven or hell, is decided by God not only before we get there, but before we're even born. It teaches that our ultimate destiny is in the hands of God. Another way of saying it is this. From all eternity, before we ever live, God decided to save some members of the human race and to let the rest of the human race perish. God made a choice. He chose some individuals to be saved unto everlasting blessedness in heaven, and others he chose to pass over to allow them to follow the consequences of their sins into eternal torment in hell. Now this is what is known as the Reformed Understanding of salvation or predestination god essentially arbitrarily chose only certain people to go has nothing to do with what you ever have done would do or or, or could do in your life it's just god choosing because it makes him happy and in doing so he set a time in history of which you would necessarily come to faith in christ because you can't do anything other than what he's chosen you to do and that's just what you'll do the people who have never been chosen for this were never predetermined for this end so therefore, no matter how often they hear the gospel, they can never believe and be saved because God is the ultimate cause that flips the switch of whether or not you're allowed to believe. That's this view. There's none. Free, in fact, they would say that free will is a myth. Or they would say this, that you have free will, 
but all of the choices that you would exercise are within the sphere of God's sovereignty. And by the way, sovereignty means that he is meticulously predestined every event, breath, leaf, whatever it is. Everything has been meticulously set into place. Now here's a problem with that. If that's true, no one is guilty of sin. Now, this works out really well for us if you think about it. You like it? If you want to know what a good viewpoint this is, Jay loves it. And we love Jay. You can never be held responsible for anything that you've ever done wrong, thought wrong, said wrong, anything. Why? wasn't your fault. God already set it up that way. What else were you supposed to do? Something apart from God's will? Now here's the thing. Is God a God of sin? There's our rub. See, in this idea of promoting God's sovereignty, which we should, we should hold to God's sovereignty. It means He's the Creator and He has a right over His creation, yes. But the idea that He would also be the sole culpable party for every sin that we would ever commit in our lives, and yet, in judgment, render himself scot-free and blaming you for everything that you had to do because he set it up that way? That's like fingernails on a chalkboard for me. That bothers me. I don't see it in Scripture. And any time that you have to elevate one attribute of God above the others... You have strained his person. Remember, John 3.16 doesn't say God was so sovereign that he got the world. It doesn't say that. It says that he loved the world. That's the motivation. So there's some dangers with this. Now here's what bothers me the most. I would say, by and large, over the past 50 to 60 years, we've seen an incredible drop in evangelism. We've seen an, an incredible absence of people actively sharing their faith because they understand the eternal consequences of a destiny lived apart from the saving message of Jesus. If you don't believe me, ask yourself this question. When's the last time I shared Christ with somebody? When's the last time I asked somebody, has anybody ever taken a Bible and shown you how you can know for sure that you're going to heaven when you die? By the way, we're having evangelism training coming up. So let everybody know. It's coming up in February, February 25th, Saturday. Be here. You'll only be here for two hours. It'll be awesome, I promise. I'll bring candy. I'll steal Zach's candy out of his office. There you go. But please come. Let me ask you this. Are you prepared to share the gospel? If the doors flew wide open, would you be ready for that opportunity? Would you be ready to talk to somebody about the free gift of salvation that Jesus completely paid for that we have no part in whatsoever except to believe and receive forgiveness. It's very important for us to be prepared. But what we've seen since the rise of this belief has really taken off. Because we've seen evangelism really going down. Now am I saying that everybody that believes in this does not evangelize? No, I'm not saying that at all. There's no way for me to possibly know that. In fact, some of the people who ardently believe this, John Piper would be one of them, is ecstatic about evangelism and promotes it often. My problem is, is with the way it looks. It's twofold. Watch this. This is a guy, James Montgomery Boyce, famous, famous pastor, written a lot of commentaries. We do not know who God's elect are. The only way we can find them out is by their response to the gospel, period. He couldn't stop there. Here's my problem with this view. And by their subsequent growth and holiness. You know what that's saying? Your works on the far end of it, better be there or you're not saved. Why? Because you're obviously not elect. And therefore, God obviously didn't predestine you. Why? Because your works don't show it. Now, let me just ask you for, a for, for, for just a minute. Can a Christian have a bad day? Can a Christian have a bad week? All the time. <laughs> Calm down, Jerry. <laughs> you're preaching, I'm getting saved. Can a Christian have a bad month? Can a Christian have a bad year? Could a Christian have a bad decade? 
actually was talking to a pastor one time in his office, and when I got to a bad decade, he told me no. Christian can have a bad year, but they can't have a bad decade. I said, I know some Christians who have had a bad decade. You wouldn't believe what's happened to them. And they're so discouraged from the Lord, and the church has completely rejected them. It's not discipling them. Who's culpable in that situation? Blood's on our hands. But anytime that we're looking for somebody's fruit, in order to qualify the root, we're in trouble. Everybody remember, the fruit of the Spirit starts internally before you ever see it. God and His Spirit works from the inside out. Should a Christian have good works? Yes. Even Warren Buffett has good works. I'm pretty sure that dude doesn't know the Lord. So it's very important for us to not be judges. Paul calls us in 2 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 4, not to judge before the time. Let the Lord judge. He'll expose it all. It's not our, it's not our job. But if we see a brother or sister that's struggling, let's love them and disciple them. Let's not throw them under the bus and say, well, I didn't see enough holiness, too bad for them. It's not good. This is a problem I have with this. Our task is to proclaim the word boldly, knowing that all whom God has elected in Christ before the foundation of the world will surely come to Jesus. Why? Because he sees election and predestination is salvific. It's not salvation. God did not choose. It doesn't say he chose us to be in him before the foundation of the world. It doesn't say that. So, this is important for us to be aware of. Now, here's the other part that bothers me. And it's actually offensive, I think. Churches should pray confidently and then evangelize. Why does it have the S? He's British. Give him a break, okay? Urgently, precisely because God has chosen many for salvation in Christ. In other words, you can share the gospel confidently because God's picked some people somewhere. So somebody's going to come to faith somewhere at some time. We just don't know who they are. If he hadn't done so, our evangelism would be pointless. Because if he didn't choose anybody and you preach the gospel to people, and by his choosing, he made them have faith so that they could believe. If he didn't choose anybody, nobody could have faith and everybody's going to hell. That's his reason. But watch this. Since he's chosen many, our evangelism is the joyful privilege of finding his elect with this gospel like miners digging for gold in a pit. Is that weird? It's like a divine hide-and-seek where damnation is on the table. That's offensive to me. Because what it's saying is, is, well, just preach to everybody. God will save who He saves. You know what? That's true anyway. But the idea, because what happens? Prejudice creeps in. He is. And what's amazing is when you ask, they can't tell you that confidently. It is. I think it was 1990, there was a real nerdy meeting of scholars. And John MacArthur was on the podium and they asked him, they said, how do you know for sure you're going to heaven when you die? He says, well, I, I see what I think are good works in my life. And so therefore, I'm 99% that I'm going. It eliminates what Christ did. See, Jay's good. He gets it. There's a danger there. And let's be honest, if there's a situation where I'm going about throughout my daily life, and my commissioning by the Lord is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded, and He is with me to the end of the age. But I think that He's only chosen certain people then I'm going to pass along here and I'm going to be like, mm, probably not Kara. I'm not going to share with her. Probably Elisha, yeah. I like his shirt, so he's probably predestined. You see what I'm saying? We start measuring up people for whether or not they're fit for heaven. Now, does everybody do this who subscribes to this view? No, they don't. But here are the dangers of it. In fact, Charles Spurgeon in his day, pastors were furious with him. How dare you go out and share the gospel with people? Don't you realize that if they're going to get saved, God's going to save them? Stop doing that. You might get in God's way. What in the world? But this is the type of attitude that has the danger of getting fostered in the church if we don't check it biblically. And that's my concern. In order to understand what Paul is saying in this verse, we have got to understand what is going on biblically. 
If somebody's doing some extensive research on this, and I encourage you to get his book if you can. If not, it's okay. I think we have a copy in the library. Gordon Olson. Here's what he says. This is a very rare word. And there is a serious question as to how it should actually be translated. In fact, I've seen some people say that if you want a good translation of what this word actually means, it should probably be pre-appointed, not predestined. That somebody had an appointment set forward beforehand might be a better way to look at it. It never occurred in the Septuagint Old Testament. In other words, when they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek so that people could read it, this word is never there. You can't find it. So you don't have anything to judge the New Testament usage off of, of how those scholars in between Malachi and Matthew would have converted it over into the Greek language. You don't have any check to do that. It says here, and is found only once in classical Greek literature before the New Testament, and a few times in secular Greek from the 3rd to 5th centuries A.D. Other than that, it just wasn't used. This was not a word that was common. Now, here's what's interesting if you think back to when we talked about election. Everybody see from the 3rd to 5th centuries A.D.? Does anybody remember who came on the scene at the end of the 300s, beginning of the 400s? Say it if you know it. Augustine. And Augustine came out of this belief system that was pagan. It was known as Manichaeism. And it had an extreme fatality that went with it. It was fatalism. And everything was determined. Nothing could ever be strayed from. The forces of good and evil hanging in the balance. It's almost like a strange, warped kind of Star Wars thing going on, okay? And so when he came to the Scriptures, for a while he had rejected those things. But when he started debating with some Catholics at that time, as the Catholic Church was rising up and they were trying to refine out their doctrine, he started bringing in some of this fatalism in order to make sense of some of these passages. And so this word started to take off after around the 5th century. Because those teachings that he brought to the table started to catch on. Now, for those of you that have been checking out the website and you go to the pastor's blog, I've been able to get the notes up on the Saturday nights before today. And I've got the ones for today up last night. You can go in there and read some of the extra research that I've done. There was no one between the time of the apostles and Augustine who ever believed something other than free will in the church. It does not exist. And this is taken from guys that have read through a lot of those old works and papers. Everybody believed and understood in free will and that you had the ability to respond or reject the gospel that was presented to you. So, this word is incredibly rare. How do we understand this? Well, number one, the word is pro-orizzo, okay? If you want to write this down in the side. Pro-orizzo. Strong's defines it as to limit in advance. It's also to limit, mark out beforehand, to design definitely beforehand, or to ordain beforehand, or even predestined. It's a compound word that's derived from two Greek words. So you have pro, meaning for, in front of, prior to, or beforehand is what it means. And then horizo, interesting word, because it's where we get our English word horizon from. If you're ever standing on the shore and you're able to look out and you see the sun going down, you're like, oh, sweetheart, that's so beautiful. What you're actually finding is there's a boundary marker way out there of which you see the sun going down, yes? It has a limit. It has a boundary out there. And so it's to set up a boundary, to mark out or bound, to appoint or to decree or to specify about something. Now, here's what's interesting about this. The word is only used... Six times in the New Testament. Now everybody gets to commit the faux pas of church early morning worship. Get out your phone if you've got literal word. What? Oh, okay. Well, you're really excited about it. Calm down. Okay. Get out your phone. Because the literal word app can help us with this. If you bring up literal word, just touch on it. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to find Ephesians. You can go there, touch the top, Ephesians chapter 1. Go to verse 5, because that's where we are. You'll see it. He predestined us to adoption of sons. Take your finger, hold on, predestined. And look what you've had pop up. You've got a definition down here of what the word is. And then you've got the little oval-looking box over to the right. Everybody see where it says found six verses? Touch on them. Right there. Only six instances in the New Testament. 
you can go through and research them all for yourself to see biblically what it means. Can we do that? Yes, we can. Here we go. Predestination in the New Testament. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Acts 4. You can jot these down in the side margin where you take notes. And we're going to look at every instance in context and see exactly how this word is used. Now, one of the concerns that we have in Acts 4 is that the author of Acts is Luke, not Paul. The situation we're dealing with in Acts is not that of a situation surrounding Paul. He doesn't come in until later, okay? So there's some question here about, well, we're not really dealing with the same author guy. How do we understand this? Well, understand we're getting a broad scope, and this is the first instance that occurs in Scripture. Notice that predestination never occurs in the Gospels. It's not a word that is used in the Gospels at all. In chapter 4 of Acts, if you would, look here in, uh, good grief, there's a lot of good stuff going on here. Uh, Verse 24. And when they had heard this, they lifted their voices to God in one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Now stop. Notice that God had anointed, that's where we get the idea of Messiah, he's the anointed one of God, has anointed him, and there was a time situation where these four entities were gathered together in one place. Herod, Pilate, Gentiles, and people of Israel. Verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. In other words, what you had determined beforehand or what you had appointed beforehand to happen, these events brought about your decision of what needed to happen. What does this tell us? It tells us that God predestined the cross of Christ. Now, here's what's interesting is, Only on fringe situation, and I say that lightly, don't read too much into it. But in a fringe situation, that has to do with us. What the cross of Christ really is, is that God hates sin. And there has to be some sort of making things right that has to take place with God in regard to people because people are full of sin. Genesis chapter 6 verse 5, God looked at their hearts and saw that they were only evil continually all the time good grief something's got to be done so what does he do he gives us all these prophecies about a savior that's going to come nobody even had on their radar that it would have been a cross of which god's perfect son would die but in doing so what was accomplished through his death salvation is now made available to the entire world god's wrath against sin is satisfied that's what the word propitiation means he's the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only for the sins of the whole world He's the one who satisfied the sin problem for both believers and unbelievers. Everybody's sins are paid for by Christ. Guess what? God made sure that at a moment in time that would happen. Now notice they bring it up that these four entities were gathered there. That doesn't mean that God forced their hand to commit murder against his son. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that in all likelihood of every possible scenario that would take place, these four entities would transpire in time as such to where Jesus would die. And in doing so, he could then be the perfect sacrifice for the sins of everyone. Now, I don't know about you, but hallelujah. Notice what this doesn't say. It doesn't say that certain people were appointed to go to heaven or hell when they die. That's not what it says. How about the next instance? Turn over to Romans. Now we get into some of the situations surrounding Paul. In Romans chapter 8, we're actually going to find that there is a double mention that goes on of this word. It's used intentionally. Look at Romans 8. And since 28 such a great verse, let's read that. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purposes. For... Here's your causal conjunction, explaining that statement. 
those whom he foreknew to know beforehand, he also predestined. Well, preacher, there it is. He knew them beforehand, so that's obviously their election, and he predestined them, predestined them to come to faith in Christ. Is that what the passage says? It is not what the passage says. Look what it says. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What does it look like to be conformed to the image of Christ? Isn't that God's goal for you and me? Yeah, what is it? Discernment would be part of it, yes. But what does that look like in time? Will we all be brought to the conformity of the image of Christ? We all will be. That's a guarantee, yes. Hasn't God promised that? Here's a question. When's that going to happen? What's that? Who said it? Yes, Greg is correct. Heaven. I'll buy you an RB sandwich too. Cindy, I owe you RB sandwich from last week. Heaven. We won't. What's that? Possibly. I think once we get there, though, I think when we see him face to face, we're going to be like, and so it's okay, right? We will not be fully conformed to the image of Christ until we die and are brought into his presence. Why? Because Christ is not bothered by sin. He can be tempted by sin, but he doesn't succumb to that temptation. Matthew 4 is clear about that. But the idea is, is when we are before him, we will be saved from the presence of sin altogether. That's called our glorification. What has God predestined? He's predestined that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. When will that happen in time? In our glorification. That's when it will happen. So notice, this doesn't say anything about heaven or hell. Now let's move on here. We don't want to get it wrong. Verse 30. And these whom he predestined, notice he's using a format here, so the predestination he's talking about in verse 30 is the exact same one as verse 29 because it's a continuation. It's stepping stones. He predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of Christ. That's what we've been predestined for. How about the next one? 1 Corinthians 2.7. This one's a little bit more difficult. 1 Corinthians 2.7. We're still in the writings of Paul. You can turn over just a few pages and find it. And this is a pretty big argument. Because Paul is stating in chapter 2, verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He came with an elementary message, but a sufficient message that was meant to introduce them to Christ, speak of what He had done on their behalf, and for them to believe to be saved. Okay, so that's a great place to be. But then look what he says in verse 3. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. In other words, those who have believed the gospel and now have grown in their faith, Paul is able to speak a wisdom that is beyond Jesus Christ and Him crucified to them. Okay? Look what he says here. Uh, Let's see here. Yet we do speak a wisdom, verse 6, among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age. In other words, it's not a temporal, worldly wisdom, who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom. In a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. In other words, that's the point of action. It's now revealed to the mature. Now, I actually brought this list up because it's copied out of a systematic theology book. I was surprised to have it in, okay? God predestined to include Gentiles among God's people. That's usually considered the mystery of the New Testament. The Gentiles have full inclusion with the Jews in Christ, and you come to that by faith alone, and they're all one body. We're going to deal with that when we get into Ephesians 2. But I also see there's an aspect here where it's saying, you know what, God actually has this lofty, weighty wisdom for the mature that he desired for them to know before time ever began. It was just meant for a certain people at a certain time. God pre-appointed that to happen for mature believers. Now, here's what's interesting. Verse 8, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood 
For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, if temporal pagan kings and ambassadors and Pilate and Herod and Gentiles and the Jews and everybody we saw back in Acts 4 would have known about what God had predestined to take place as wisdom for the mature in Christ and they would have understood that about Jesus, they would have taken their hands off and never have put him on the cross. Now here's the reason why that's interesting and this is just to tickle your brain for a minute. Paul is telling you what would have happened as a certainty had situation been different. That's very interesting. It's not a hypothetical. It's actually something that would have taken place if something would have been different. I won't charge you extra for that, but just think about it for a while, okay? That's interesting. So notice right there, has nothing to do with predestining people to heaven or to hell. What's that? Satan didn't even know it. Yes, he would have come up with a much different idea. Yes. It's very interesting to think how the wisdom of God has confounded the powers of this world and the supernatural powers in order to provide salvation for all people. Incredible. So now, Ephesians 1.5, this is what we're dealing with. Believers are predestined for adoption. Isn't that what the text says? Now here's the interesting thing about this, and I was so thankful when I saw this in this theology book. And again, if you want more information about all this stuff, I can get it to you. It's fine if you want it for yourself. We actually have a copy of this book in the library. You can talk to Mary. She can get it for you, okay? But adoption of sons is a future event. It is not you've been predestined to believe Jesus and he adopts you into his family now. That's not how the phrase is used here. It's speaking of a realm or a sphere of blessing that is now available to the believer completely that we just need to be in, not try to do for. Everybody with me on that? So notice, we see very clearly Ephesians 1.5, he predestined us to adoption of sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. What was the predestined? He predestined the adoption of sons. And when is that? It is a future time. We will look at that next week. But we have one more. If you look down the page a little bit, Ephesians 1, 11. If you're not already at Ephesians, go there. Ephesians 1, 11. Sometimes it's easier just to use the book or you can turn over or whatever you need to. Ephesians 1, 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of of his will to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. We have obtained an inheritance having been predestined. Predestined for what? To obtain the inheritance. He has predestined an inheritance for you and for me. He has appointed beforehand that if you're a believer in Christ, you get stuff. That sounds nice. You don't need Ed McMahon to make this one work. It's a guarantee of the Lord. You get an inheritance. Notice it doesn't say anything about heaven or hell when you die. Now, the guy who wrote this, he follows this up by saying, as demonstrated by examining the occurrences of the word in the Bible, predestination does not refer to God selecting individuals for salvation. It doesn't occur. It's not there. That belief is theology. It's not doctrine predestination is not about conversion it's something for the converted that's very important for us to understand it says here rather predestination refers to god's promises for believers now here's a question you're saying this sounds as strange as can be you might as well have lobsters crawling out of your ears i don't even know what's going on i've always held this all my life this is messing me up i don't believe you that's fine i'm not asking you to believe me i'm asking you to believe the scriptures okay understand this I went through probably the most difficult and insane time in my life because I used to hold to the salvific view. And when I came to a moment to realize that everybody whose book I had ever collected and read was wrong on my bookshelf, it destroyed my world. It might as well have split me in two. I had a hard time overcoming that and recognizing how in the world do I come to terms with it. You know what's interesting? Here's the question that got me. Have you ever thought that maybe John 3.16 just means what it says? That's what God used to get my attention. Because what I'd always heard is, for God so loved the world. Well, world there means the elect who haven't come to Christ yet. The word world never means that in the New Testament. But somebody told me, just read John 3.16 for what it says and then try to tell me what it says. 
I had smoke coming off of me. I was about to burst a jugular and just tap out. It was terrible. It was spiritually devastating. Spiritually devastating. I was having so much problem with the book of Hebrews. And then somebody asked that little linchpin question, and next thing you know, I just melt. I don't know how to deal with it. What? What? Is this a fringe belief about predestination? I love H.A. Ironside. used to be the pastor at Moody Church. Here's what he says. You will note that there's no reference in these four verses, he's referring to Romans 8 and Ephesians 1, to heaven and hell, but to Christ-likeness eventually. Nowhere are we told in Scripture that God predestined one man to be saved and another to be lost. Men are to be saved or lost eternally because of their attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ. That's something that's decided here and now, not in eternity past, and not by somebody else other than you. You have to make that decision for yourself when you come in confrontation with the gospel. How about this? Lawrence Vance. I sometimes don't recommend his book because his tone is not ironic, okay? He's he's a little hostile about some things, but he's got an incredible amount of good arguments. Not only is there no mention of when this predestination took place, notice that none of them ever said before the foundation of the world attached to that, it never happened. It had nothing to do with who should or should not become a Christian. Predestination occurs only... It concerns only our destiny as Christians. So what are some applications we can pull from this? If we see that this is what it's saying, and we see that Ephesians uh, 1.5 is telling us, He predestined us to adoption of sons, which falls under the umbrella of every spiritual blessing, and that's nothing but good things and stars and butterflies and puppy dogs and unicorns for us. That's great. Okay? So what does that look like? Well, here's an application. Number one, If you've ever been terrified of not knowing if you are predestined by God to go to heaven, you can end that fear now because it's not how God does things. Some people struggle and freak out because they have no assurance. And everything that they're looking for for the assurance of their eternal destiny is found here and here. I'm going to tell you something. These are scary places to be. The heart is desperately wicked. Who could know it? Right? Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Why? Because your own understanding goes south. Every time. Every time. Because if I take the time to look at my actions to validate my eternity, I have completely dismissed what Christ did in placing me in a perfect position in Him. Our location in Christ, vitally important. I'm to be. It's not about me doing. It's about being. It's about who I am. And I'm fully accepted the Father because of the work of the Son. So if this is a fear that you struggled with over time, lay it down. You don't need it. It's not yours to bear. It's a done deal. Believe God's Word. How about number two here? If you've ever used the excuse that someone must not be predestined for heaven so as to be disobedient or unloving towards them, the Lord wants you to repent. I asked a friend of mine who's a really sound theologian through text, I said, hey, what do you think is the greatest problem about people believing a salvific, salvation predestination? He says it gives you permission to hate people because God hates them. God could save them and he just chose not to. I'm not going to save that person. Why? God doesn't have a reason. He doesn't have to explain himself to you. But obviously, if he is the linchpin that makes somebody saved or not saved and he chose not to do it, you can't call that love. You can't call it love. And if that type of thing trickles from father to son and daughter, we could easily come off with an attitude of, well, I don't think Jesus died for that person. You know what? And here's a bad thing. I've noticed that a lot of Christians lately over the past 50 to 70 years are really looking for somebody to hate. They're really looking for people to hate. Let's hate people. Let's hate the LGBTQ people. Let's hate those King James only people. Good grief. When our brothers and sisters fall by the wayside, we're usually the next ones to shoot them. We can't be like that. That's not Christ. We can't just sit here with a bitter, calloused, hardened, unforgiving heart all the time. That's not the Lord Jesus. That's not the faith. And what we don't need is, a well, since God feels this way about him, I guess I can too. Not saying everybody comes to that conclusion. But some people do. And I see it a lot. I see it a lot. You're not even saved because of this viewpoint. You don't agree with me on this. You're not even saved. Good grief. That is not the church. Number three, if the salvific view of predestination has made your evangelism cold. In other words, you don't share the good news of the cross because if God's going to save them, 
He's going to save them. Why do I need to do anything? Because that is the Great Commission. You can now warm up to evangelism because you now have the grace of God on your side. We're having evangelism training. February 25th. Be here. 9 o'clock to 11. 9 to 11. Be here. And let's talk about what it is to actually sit down and have an effective conversation with somebody about the cross of Jesus Christ and give them the opportunity to decide for themselves, having heard the good news about whether or not they want forgiveness of sins and a Savior because they need Him. Now, this all trails back to this point. Right acting begins with right thinking. And right thinking begins by thinking right about what God is like. We have got to think correctly about God if we're ever going to live correctly about God. And when we get the issue of predestination lined out biblically, all of a sudden you find that there's an incredible amount of abounding grace that is just waiting to be shared with people. God wants us to share it. He commands us to share it. There's not one person on the face of the earth who has ever lived that he doesn't desire to heap leaps and bounds of grace upon and drown them in it so that they will be blessed forever. That's the graciousness of our God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for loving us in such an incredible way as to have your word speak clearly to these issues about how you think and what your word has to say and how you give a context to determine the meaning of a word. We're not denying that you're the one who saves. You're not, we're not denying the, you're the one who predestines. But the question is, predestines to what? Lord, I'm thankful that your word answers that. Father, maybe we're struggling with this. Maybe we see this as new teaching. Maybe we see this as wrong teaching. But Lord, let us not ever confuse it as being unbiblical teaching. Lord, your word has spoken very clearly to this. And I pray, God, that we would have hearts to receive. I pray, God, that we would have minds that the Holy Spirit can work on so that the Scriptures be the defining point of how we think about you. And in doing so, Lord, instead of being, I don't know, critchety, jerks, mean, whatever it might be, a sour attitude that may come from viewing this doctrine wrongly. Father, instead, we would recognize the leaps and bounds of love that you have for people. That it's, you're, you're just not content of bringing them into eternal life. You desire for them to have abundant life. Your desire for your children is so much more than what we often settle for. And so I thank you, God, that because of the cross, because Jesus stretched out his arms and he died in our place for us, these things are made abundant for us and completely for us without asking anything in return of us. We praise you for your glorious grace. It is in Jesus' name. Amen.